want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our study. We talked about, uh, didn't finish up the sermon last week, but talked about uh, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to deal with that today and talking about words. Have you ever heard the uh, saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me? You ever heard that? Well, I was told that when growing up. Somebody say something ugly to you and you get hurt and, you know, you pout and all. And, and uh, so you learn that saying. And so you, when they say something to you, you go, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. You know, and you do that. Then you walk away from them. And they say, what in the world's going on there? You know. But anyway, as you heard that, what does that mean? That means that sticks and stones may hurt me physically, but I want to let you know that what you say, I'm not going to pay any attention to it because I'm, not, I'm going to walk away from it and just forget about it. And it's not going to hurt me, what you say. Well, that's good in some ways because we should teach our, our children that there's going to be people that are going to be ugly out there at times. And we're going to be ugly at times, unfortunately, even as believers in Jesus Christ. And so we need to, we need to learn how to accept that because everybody's not going to say things the way that we'd like to say them all the time. And unfortunately, they're not always going to be nice and kind, but that's not the issue. The issue is that words do hurt. For example, a person with a speech, he can destroy another person's character. We're seeing this over the news all the time with different people. I mean, it's no longer you're innocent until you're proven guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent. And so what do they do? They, they just slander your character. And then if a person isn't, Strong enough, it can even damage their emotions and destroy their self-esteem. We've heard of people taking their lives, kids, you know, these safe zones and all this kind of stuff. They're just not taught how to accept these words and that words and sayings can be ugly. And, and so they, they do. They damage them and they don't know what to do. And, and some of them have even taken their lives. Words can be damaging as far as the truth is concerned. And by truth, I mean the Word of God. It can be very damaging. And so we need to be very careful in teaching the right things. We need to be very careful in teaching the truth. I want to tell you, when we're compromising the truth today, we are doing great damage to the Word of God. And when we compromise according to society and culture then we have gone against God and his truth and his word and so we need to be very careful it doesn't matter how much you how many degrees you have and how much studying you've done and if you know the Greek or if you know the Hebrew or if you know German or whatever if you are not teaching the truth, that's damaging. And you're representing the truth. And this is exactly what was happening here with the Pharisees and the scribes. The people who should have known the scripture. The people who studied the scripture. The people who taught the scripture. They were saying things and trying to damage Christ and his character. Christ and his works. 
And so in verse 34 we read, you brood of vipers. Boy, he's getting very direct there, isn't he? Jesus is. And he's talking to the Pharisees. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. In other words, have you ever heard your parents say when you're saying something ugly to your siblings or to someone else, that's not nice. And maybe you don't understand what the words and what they're doing to another person but it's showing what is in your heart at that time. And that's anger and evil. And that's what your parents are trying to show you. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, <laughs> your words show what kind of heart you have. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. I want to tell you, Jesus comes on, you brood of vipers. I mean, that's very judgmental. People say, he shouldn't be judgmental. Well, he's judgmental in the right way. He's telling the truth. He's judging their hearts. He's letting their words show and tell them that their hearts are wrong. Sometimes, you know, parents have to be firm in getting across something. And Jesus is being firm in getting across this. So... It's a very dangerous thing in what they did. And they made claims that the miracles and teachings of Jesus were done by the Spirit, not by the Spirit of God, but by the Spirit of Satan. And that was blasphemy. And so Jesus and the Pharisees are in conflict. Now this conflict has been rising. And so first of all, that's the very first thing I want us to look back at and 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 bring us up to par here is the rising conflict. What we're studying today is a continuation of the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. And they have, they have brought on this conflict. And this conflict will continue to rise and get hotter and hotter and, and more intense until the day of the cross when they have him crucified. They are trying to get him out of the way. He's gathering a crowd, and they don't like this. He's telling them that he's Messiah, and some of them are receiving this, and they certainly don't like that. But let's just go back. In Matthew chapter 11, look in verses 28 and 29. What did he say? He said, come to me who are heavy laden, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in, in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. There it is, rest again. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Now, who in the world, when that invitation is offered, who in the world wouldn't want to accept that invitation? Who wouldn't want the rest that he's offering there? Where you're no longer trying to prove and trying to hope that you're, you're righteous enough to get into heaven. I'll do this good work. I'll do that good work. I'll do this. I'll do that. And I hope God will let me into heaven one day. 
and you're never sure. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of, of uh, justification by faith alone. Where we trust Christ for our provision instead of trying to provide it ourselves. We always fall short. It doesn't matter what we do. Why would anyone not want that? I mean, here the Pharisees are, are struggling through this and have, you know, made up all these laws. Why wouldn't they want that? They didn't. From there, Jesus tries to teach them by doing something on the Sabbath. Illustrating to them, showing them how far they have gotten away from God and His Word and how they are to believe and trust in Him. The Pharisees' vivid demonstration of their misunderstanding and misuse of the gospel comes through this Sabbath. And we have the conflict in Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Where the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples, they were walking on the Sabbath and they picked some, uh, some uh, corn or, or stalk and they, they shucked it and ate it. And they accused them of breaking the law. Now that was their tri uh, uh, tradition, you remember? They, they, uh, to protect themselves uh, with the law and the Sabbath and resting on the Sabbath, they said, what does that mean? Well, it may mean this. And so they make a law so that it would... Uh, cover them that and they say yeah but what about if we break that what will cover that and they make another law and another law and another law but these were not God's laws and so it became very stressful and Jesus says in verse 6 he says but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here let me go a step further let me tell you that something greater than the temple is here and then in verse 8 he says before you is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Those two things are, are very important. You see, the, the, uh, Israel understood the temple as symbolizing their relationship with God. I mean, that's where they went to worship, kind of like church, you know. That's where they, they, they met together, and that's where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest went in once a year. It was representation of that covenant with God. We're God's covenant people. And we understand that and we love that. And the temple is so important to us. It was here where we offer up the sacrifices for our sins to be forgiven. That's where the sacrifices were made. What could be greater than the temple? I mean, the temple was awesome. It represented all that. It represented God. Only God could be greater. Than the temple. Well, what is Jesus saying? Jesus saying, here is God. I am God. I am deity. Next, the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Whose institution is the Sabbath? It's God's institution, isn't it? If you, uh, I mean, how did Israel receive the Sabbath? It was received by the law of God and the provision of God because it was on the seventh day of God's creation. What did he do? He rested. No, he wasn't. It wasn't that he was tired. God never gets tired. Boy, I sure would get tired. Try and keep up with all us, wouldn't you? <laughs> Especially me. I know. But 
God never gets tired. What is he talking about? He rested in the sense that he stepped back and he let mankind see that, hey, this was my creation. It was perfect in every way because God is perfect. And I want you to honor it. I want you to recognize it. And every time you, you sit back on the seventh day and rest and, and recognize it, you recognize that I am holy. I am the God who made it and, and you worship me and you honor me. All the days and nights I created, I organized all of this. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the, horse, uh, the Sabbath. Wow, the Lord of the Sabbath? Who set the rules? I thought God did. The regulations, I thought God did. The, you know, the understanding, the conception of the, the Sabbath. Who did all of that? God made it possible. Now Jesus is redefining the Sabbath. Only God can do that. Jesus says, right? I'm telling you, Pharisees, I am God. I am deity. I mean, he's helping them out. He's trying to make them see. What is Matthew trying to say? The Pharisees understood exactly what he was saying, but they would not accept it. It's like people who sit in service over and over and over again, who hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit convicts them. They go out every time refusing the Lord one day to be in an accident and die. Do you think God's going to give them a second chance after they die to go to heaven? He gave them plenty of chances while they were able to make that decision, and they refused. And judgment is for them. Eternal separation is for them. Not because of Jesus, not because of God, not because of, uh, of what he didn't do. It's what he did do and what they refused because of it. And so the Pharisees were... You know, they, they knew and they understood that this was the same kind of authority that was demonstrated again and again by God. And Jesus now is claiming it. Remember with the Sermon on the Mount? You go back to that. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, whoa, who can add to or who can say something as strong or stronger than what they already had? Only God. Only God. That was awesome. Who can expand on Scripture? Only God. The author of Scripture can do that. Only Him. So with the temple, the Sabbath, with this saying over and over again, adding uh, to the Scripture, Jesus is demonstrating to them that, hey, deity is here over and over and over again. He's been letting them know. And over and over and over again, they have been hardening their hearts. Then on the Sabbath, Jesus, Jesus went further. He said, man, I'm going to get, you, you're talking about God giving us every possible chance, every possible opportunity to repent and be saved. You talk about a gracious God, a long-suffering God, a God who loves us so much. Man, we can see it with him dealing with the Pharisees over and over and over again. Then on the Sabbath, we go back and Jesus further demonstrates his deity by healing a man with a withered hand. 
He reveals to them their, their faulty thinking once again by uh, of, of healing somebody on the, the, uh, the Sabbath. They say, you can't do that. That's work. No. And he illustrates by using a sheep trapped in a pit. And he says, who would not go and help the sheep out of trouble and bring it back to safety, nursing it back to health? Is an animal more important than God, than, than man? The logic is, well, no. So many in the crowd who had uh, been healed by him and who were following him were understanding this, who Jesus was. And he told them, he said, you know, I warn you, don't go out and tell anybody. Not of what happened, but who I am. Because why? It's not time yet. That's what he was saying. It's not God's time. And so... um, It says uh, in verse 16, not to make him known before them because it was not his time. Now, while Jesus is telling the crowd not to make him known, the Pharisees, what? They've left. And what did they do back in verse 14? Counseling together against him as to how they might destroy him. And in verse 22 and following, he gives him another chance, another incident, another thing that happened on the Sabbath where Jesus heals the dumb and the blind possessed by a demon. And the Pharisees, though, now accuse him of casting out demons, and this is it. This is the ultimate. This is blasphemy. This is the unpardonable sin, as we call it. Casting out demons by being the prince of demons, Satan. They're saying, you did that because you are Satan. Wow. Jesus reveals to them how illogical their argument is by giving another metaphor about a house being divided. And he says, if he cast out demons by the power of Satan, then Satan's house is divided and will not stand. Besides that, if Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebul, then who do your prophets and disciples cast out demons? In other words, I've heard you say, and there's been sayings about them casting out demons. Well, are you being a little biased here? Let them be your judge. Same power if they're casting out demons. You say they're doing it by God? Okay, you've convicted yourself. Jesus Jesus goes on to say, you may sin against me, but to claim that the power of the Holy Spirit Working to cast these demons out from, uh, is from Satan. That is blasphemy. That is the unforgivable sin. Jesus has turned their logic then against themselves. And the reaction of the crowd, it was certainly different from the Pharisees. The crowd was saying, who could speak these things? Who could do these miracles? Who could do these things except the one being the Messiah? And they're beginning to speculate that this must be the Messiah. Jesus must be the Messiah, the one who the scripture talks about. Who could do these except the promised Messiah? And then in verse 33, Jesus again turns to the Pharisees. And he turns their argument against them. And he says, the tree is known by its fruits, fellas. He says, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you're dividing the nation of Israel. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but 
the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. In other words, you can under, misunderstand who I am because in, I'm in my incarnation, incarnated state. But a word against the Holy Spirit, to speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, don't look for another chance. You're doing it now, and you will be judged. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. Hey, what you're saying, it, it depicts who you are. Where your heart is. As with the metaphor of the tree, Jesus has pointed out to the Pharisees that their words have proven what is in their heart. They're evil. Jesus has given the invitation. The invitation was, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come unto Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and I will give you rest. But what do they do? They resist him. Not only do they resist him, but they also try to dissuade others from accepting him. And that's dangerous ground there. Very dangerous. The spiritual leaders seek to, dis uh, to dissuade others from coming to receive Christ, the gift of eternal salvation. And they're trying to influence others from accepting the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who is working through him to perform these miracles and leads him in his teaching. So this unpardonable sin seems to be the sin that was committed against the Holy Spirit during the time of Christ where they saw these miracles being performed and they rejected Christ and claimed that those miracles were done by Satan instead of the power of God, the Spirit of God. I thought it was ultimate unbelief. Well, ultimate unbelief when dealing with, with Christ is always unforgivable because that person keeps on uh, rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ, and rejecting Christ until they die. I mean, yeah, that's unforgivable, but that's not the same as here. The unpardonable sin does not warrant a, a motion that, that those who, um, uh, a notion that those who uh, immediately uh, do not believe the gospel will not have a chance to be saved again. We know that's not true because God gives us those opportunities. How many in here could say, well, you know, I, I felt some conviction when I was a child, but I didn't receive Christ until later on. That's God's grace. Blasphemy deals with a specific sin. And so the sin of blasphemy is the sin of claiming Christ's miracles and saying that they were done by Satan and not by the author who performed them, which is the Spirit of God. It's a sin against the Holy Spirit. They were rejecting the Spirit's testimony to the king, the binder of the strong man's house. And the rejection of the miracles being from God meant they rejected the Messiah who performed those and accredited the power to uh, perform those miracles to Satan. And so the sin was committed in a historical context, it seems. The sin against the Spirit was final and unforgivable because they had witnessed Christ's miracles and ascribed his work to Satan. Well, let's look at what the conflict leads to, the issuing of the divine judgment. Here Jesus becomes very stern and strong. 
He is, issues a divine judgment to all who refuse him. He tells him that you can tell its source according to its fruit, whether it's good or bad. The tree justifies its, its existence of its fruitfulness. Whether it's a good tree needs to be cut down, it's producing bad fruit or not producing fruit at all, or whether it's a good fruit a tree producing good fruit. The Pharisees feared that many of Jesus' followers would, would believe and accept him and his teaching, so they began to accuse him and blaspheme the Spirit of God's working. And in verse 34, we have one of the strongest words, as I mentioned earlier, uh, of judgment found in scriptures. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. With Israel, this was a nightmare of, an, of a, a metaphor. I mean, it was awful. Brood of vipers? That's a nightmare. How, how many of you uh, ever saw the movie Temple of Doom by in, uh, Indiana Jones? Man, we dropped down there and those snakes with those snakes. Woo! Man, I do not like that. Boy, I tell you what, I, I, the best snake that I can see is a dead snake, man. I tell you, amen. One pastor in Israel was standing at the entrance of the cave while he was on tour to Israel. And outside was a vine near where he was standing. At the bottom of the vine, he just happened to see a snake and he jumped back. And when he did, he, he walked over to the uh, tour guide and uh, he, he just asked, he said, uh, one of the locals, he said, uh, what kind of snake is that? Is it poisonous? He said, well, it's a bye-bye snake. And the preacher asked, what is a bye-bye snake? And the local said, well, if bitten by a bye-bye snake, you might have enough time to make it home and say bye-bye to your family before you die. So tradition has it that this is a kind of snake also that the poison was brought or taken from to, uh, uh, you know, to be uh, given to Cleopatra when she uh, died. And so the metaphor here, brood of vipers, was a nightmare. Man, when, they, when he said that, I mean, it was a nightmare of a description. And when Jesus called the Pharisees this, he was saying, in essence, you are poison to God and you are poison to his people. You are an enemy to God's covenant people. Just as the snakes that bite them in the wilderness during the time of Moses was, you are that way. Then Jesus reiterates it with, how can you being evil speak what is good? You can't. I mean, if you're evil, it's, good's not going to come out. And we're not talking about sometime and this type thing and sparingly, but it's an ongoing thing with the Pharisees. Because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart in verse 34. In other words, what is going to come out of your mouth will be evil because you are evil. You've never been saved. You're not a believer. You're not going to tell the crowd, I am the Messiah. Follow him. You're not going to speak good of me. You're going to speak evil of me and try to get the people to believe in your way and follow your way. And not accept me. In verse 35 he continues. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. He explains that one of the most basic principles of scripture here. Regarding man is the mouth speaks what is in the heart. Now in scripture the heart represents the seat of 
thought and eve uh, and and the will rather than the seat of emotions which is uh, represented by the bowels and the stomach so the heart represents the character of the person revealing what a person is like the mouth simply uh, reproduces verbally what is in the heart i mean it just opens up and it uh, what's in the heart comes out so when jesus speaks treasure and and by the way treasure is what where we get the word uh, english word what yeah thesaurus which means what treasury of words so he means storehouse or treasury a person's heart is a treasury of his thoughts ambitions desires loves attitudes and loyalty then James says does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water in 311 the answer obvious is obvious just like Jesus said good treasure brings forth what is good and evil treasure brings forth what is evil it's like the old saying with the computers what garbage in is garbage out so the quality of data entered determines the quality of results produced from the data so there are people that you run into who are like the description of these Pharisees. Every time they speak, and I'm talking about it, it's an ongoing pattern. It seems like it's poisonous. It seems uh, something bad is always coming out of that person's mouth. It seems that something hateful, something ugly, something uh, evil, something critical is always there. And it's spoken. Well, re the reality over time this does reflect the heart if there's not a change and this is constant this is a calculated word that describes a calculated evil that jesus is talking about jesus is suggesting the pharisees to the pharisees that they are evil he is being you know as some people would say boy you're judgmental he's judgmental okay in the right way he's letting them know what's in their heart they have accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And they have spoken words of conspiracy as to how they might destroy Jesus. They've spoken words of entrapment. Jesus tells them, you will give counsel on the day of judgment for every, not just word, not just uh, calculated word, but every what? Careless word you've spoken. worthless word in other words God will render to them against their account at the day of judgment by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned you know we can look at this and I know that that uh, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit but we're talking about words we we as believers we need to watch our speech I mean it reflects God's transforming work in our life I need to watch it all of us do I'm not talking about necessarily the tone at times because we need to be strong at times but I am talking about the words the transformation that has occurred in Christ doesn't mean though that we will not struggle with this concept of, of words we still have an unredeemed humanness that which uh, needs constant care don't we this old body and uh, it's increasingly um, uh, you know ugly if we let it still rule us that's why we need to be growing strong in the Lord the psalmist says set a guard O Lord over my mouth keep watch over the door of my lips 
There needs to be a change that has occurred in a believer, a change that is working at all times. Now, does that mean that we won't slip and fall, I mean, and, and stumble over this and stumble over our words? No. It just means that we need to just be careful and make less and less attempts at that. We can, we can get a good indication of a spiritual condition by listening to the person's words. I mean, you think about it. If it's all about them, if it's all mean towards other people and, and other things, I mean, they may be a believer, but they are not growing spiritually. If that's constantly what they're doing. Here Jesus' thrust is towards the unbeliever though. Especially to the Pharisees who blasphemed against the, day, against the Holy Spirit. And he says your day will come. The day of judgment. Words are important. They show us and others what is in our hearts. As believers though, even though our sins have been taken care of. Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Our words and our deeds can still be hurtful, both calculated and careless words. We try to carry on the conversation. I think that words are not as meaningful to us today and thought-provoking today as they were with them back then. Why? Because just try to carry on the conversation today and think about it. I mean, you have people texting, you have people on the computers, you have people on the phone, you have people talking, you have TV going if you're on, in the home. All these other disturbances surrounded by the words. So many words that are going out around us that we begin to discount the power of words, I'm afraid. Words become just light things that appear and then disappear by turning on something and by turning it off. But let me close with this. Scientists theorize that sound waves are never completely lost but gradually fade beyond detection. With sufficiently sensitive instruments, they say, every word, every spoken, uh, that's ever been spoken in history of mankind presumably could be retrieved. Man. Wow. Now then let's switch the channel. How much more certain can we be that that is true with God? Every word that we say can be retrieved. A God who is infallible, has infallible records. Just think about it for a second. Whether careless or calculated, those words can be retrieved. Jesus is letting Pharisees know that they're toiling with the kingdom of God and defying the kingdom of God. He's saying your words will lead to your destruction and judgment one day. You will be accountable for every word that you've spoken. Jesus tells them that their words reveal, will reveal what they are. By your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Wow. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Is there anyone in here?